Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. I'm really happy today to be joined by Ralph Delia. He's the founder and CEO of the Delco Group Limited. Uh, it's an international logistics management company founded in 1981. And Ralph joins us from Wellington, Florida. But uh, Ralph, you weren't born there, were you? No, I was not. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born, and that sort of thing. Well, sure. I um, was born in 1953 in Lindenhurst, Long Island, um, which was the suburbs of New York City that was being developed at the same time the Levittown uh, communities were being built to house all of the workers that were going to be working in Manhattan. And uh, it was an uh, interesting life. It was the, it was the life of a, a kid around hundreds and hundreds of other kids that had complete freedom. Do you have siblings? I do. I have one sister who's uh, six years older than me, and she lives and has lived in Hawaii since uh, 1971. Okay. So tell us about your, your mom and dad and what was kind of important to them growing up and how they raised you. As a product of the baby boom generation, um, you know, raised in a 2.5 children family, which is what most people had, two kids somewhere on the street. Um, it was a very tight-knit family. My mom and dad were all about family first. Dad's brothers, at least uh, four of them, moved onto the same street in Lindenhurst at the same time in the same style houses in 1953, the year I was born. And alongside of that, some of the other brothers' wives' families moved into the same street. So we had a very large family all within a one suburban block area in the same style homes. Dad was a hardworking guy. I mean, up every morning at uh, 5, 5.30 to get on a train to commute an hour and a half into lower Manhattan, where his job was, and an hour and a half back. And that was, uh, that was if there was no snow or train delays. And so did his brothers. His brothers all commuted at the same time. So uh, family was commuting into the city, family was commuting back from the city, and family spent the weekends together. Sounds like you guys pretty much owned the street. <laughs> Uh, we, we had the majority of the street, yeah. Uh -huh. did, did you play outside? <laughs> we sure did. Not only did we play, but I have, I have five cousins that are within one year of my age. And then my sister, um, who's six years older than me, she had four cousins that were close to her age within a year. So we had two sets of, of actually we had three, and then we had another group of, of, of cousins that were four or five years younger than myself. So we had three sets of family cousins and first cousins that all grew up together, you know, and, and we all played together. We spent uh, weekends together, summer vacations, which was really just to be around the yard and, and hang out together. The organized um, summer vacations that happened to kids today didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. It was too expensive. Mm -hmm. The name Delia is Italian, is that correct? Yep, and big Italian family, because besides the ones that lived on our street, there were other relatives, uh, siblings of my dad, um, that moved into other sections of Long Island. Very close-knit family, and, and, and grandmother and grandfather on both sides 
were immigrants from Italy. Uh-huh. So I'm second generation. Got it. So when did you uh, move to Florida, and did your parents stay then in New York? No, actually, that's pretty funny because the business that I founded, I founded it with my father. I mm-hmm. started to work with my dad in, in the early 70s, 72 to be exact. Mm-hmm. And we formed our own company in 81, and we, I, I mandated that the company be moved closer to where I lived, which at the time was Bayshore, a little further east than Lindenhurst. But, um, you know, I didn't want to make the commute anymore, and, and I felt that messengers could run the paperwork back and forth, and telephones were what we did. Um, so when we founded the company, we founded it out on Long Island, and Dad was 62 when we founded the company. Wow. Yep, and he still lived in Lindenhurst, but they had already purchased a small condo in Boca Raton. So they snowbirded. You know, they were the snow, the, one of the original snowbird uh, groups, and uh, they, they would come, come and go to Florida regularly during the winter and then eventually migrated uh, for full winters and eventually full-time. So uh, my move to Florida, I wanted to move to Florida by the time I was 16. I hated, I hated Long Island so badly. <laughs> One more winter and I, 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 I had it. Uh-huh. Um, what did you even know about Florida, though? It was warm. <laughs> it was warm. It was warm. There was surf down here. You mm-hmm. know, I was young. Um, I just wanted to be where warm weather was. And, you know, I don't think I even visited Florida. Mm-hmm. When, when I wanted to be here, I had never been down here. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it was someplace I knew I wanted to go to warmer weather. I even gave um, Hawaii a try when my sister migrated there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was seventeen, I spent uh, eight months with her. But it, it wasn't for me. Island living is is a lot different than just southern living. So I came back to Long Island and and, and got married uh, very young. I got married when I was eighteen. Now let me go back to your dad for a second. Starting a business at age sixty-two is not easy. He had you, but that's pretty gutsy to do something like that. Was that sort of typical of your dad to have that sort of, you know, let's just do it? Exactly the opposite. My mm-hmm. father was not a risk taker, you know, uh, coming, coming out of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, he believed you, you have a job, you, you earn your salary, you be good to the people that employ you, and mm-hmm. they'll be good to you. Um, and many times during our early career together, when we started working together, I saw opportunities that he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't pursue them. He felt that wasn't right, you know, to leave the people that had employed him for 15 to 20 years, I guess, by that time, mm-hmm. and start his own company. And t- more than that, he didn't want to take the risk. He knew where his paycheck came from. Mm-hmm. Where was he working um, before that? It was a company in Manha- Lower Manhattan um, called Transport Specialists. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, they were two fellows that worked with my dad in a very large company right after the war doing logistics management. His side of it was exports, and his, his friend's side was imports. And they offered him to be a partner, but he didn't want that. He wanted them to pay him a salary. So he was not a risk taker by any means. Oddly enough, in, in 1981, uh, we had control of some very large multinational accounts, mm-hmm. and one of them uh, was Upjohn International. And we visited them regularly out in Kalamazoo, Michigan, very Midwest company, you know, very straight and narrow. And uh, we would visit them, and they would visit us in New York, and they would always let us know when they were coming. And one day, the senior vice president of International called us. It was a woman at the time, and uh, she said, I'm in New York. I need to see you tonight. And when she visited us, we thought something very terrible was going to happen because it was very unlike, unlike that mm-hmm. you know, for her to contact us last minute. And sure enough, she contacted us to let us know that uh, the very next day we were not to go into the office, that the partners my dad was working for 
were had been under investigation by uh, U.S. Customs for about five years, oh and we were too, but we were exonerated of any wrongdoing, and she advised us, if we start our own company, she'd bring all the business of Upjohn to us and advise all of our other clients that we had nothing to do with this, but if, if we didn't go out on our own and went to work for somebody else, we would have to bid on the business. Hmm. And so it was really a push off the cliff. Yeah. To me, it was a blessing in disguise. To my father, it mm-hmm. was no option. There was, there was no option. He had to do this. So, um, and that may have been know, the we, only way he could do it for him, right? That's absolutely right. I, I think at the time, knowing that I'm 62 now, if, if I was presented with this, I might walk away and say, let me do something else. I'm done. But, um, you know, he had a son, me, involved in the business. I had children, and he had the seed money. You know, I didn't. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure. Did that change your relationship with your dad? Did When you started working together, how did that I respected him a lot more. I, I respected what he did a lot more. Um, you know, honestly, I never knew what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as a kid growing up, his title, you know, whenever you have to go to school and you know, what was your father's occupation, you'd have to fill it in. It was, uh, I'd always say, what do you do, Dad? And he'd say, I'm a traffic manager because that was the title in its day. Mm-hmm. Now it's international logistics expert. Mm-hmm. Um, a little fancier sounding. Yeah, the corporate speak. <laughs> um, but his was traffic manager. And when I, when I started working with him, I honestly thought that I'd go into New York and we would be managing traffic on the street. Of course. I well, what no else would you think? I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I gained a lot of respect for the amount of people he knew, his knowledge. And oddly enough, for the first two years, I did not work side by side with him at all. As a matter of fact, it was mandatory that by him that I worked with his underlings to teach me, hmm. that I didn't have any direct, direct uh, education by him for mm-hmm. the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. And during that time, was your mom just managing the home front, not just as in, oh, that's so Actually, easy. mom, no, mom started, working, um, mom started working when I was in third grade. She worked in, for a retail store in the town of Lindenhurst. You know, in those days, the department stores were actually in the towns, not malls. Mm-hmm. And uh, she started working for them. And then she went on to a company called Rogers Drugs, uh, which was a wholesale distributor of pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical supplies to the pharmacies pre-big box pharmacies in the day when every town had one or two pharmacies and this company would go out and they'd get calls in the morning of the supplies the pharmacist might need or the company and then we would, um, the, her, her company would deliver them. And actually I worked, I worked for that company prior to working for my dad. Oh, okay. So you were working really young. Started. Oh, I started working when I was 16, maybe even mm-hmm. younger. 14, I had part-time jobs, 15 part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. I've, done, I've done everything. I've, I've, been a, a, I've been a dishwasher, a cook, short order cook. I've been a manager of a clothing store, uh, sales, sales on the floor, hard sales on the floor for clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I drove a truck for Rogers Drugs. I, I packed out food for Pathmark. Oh, wow. At night, at night in the frozen food section. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that may have been my best paying job, relatively speaking. And your coldest. <laughs> coldest. Oh. That'll send and you to you Florida. And you wonder why I wanted to come to Florida. <laughs> exactly. So how old were you when you went down to Florida permanently? Actually, my wife and I, my second wife and I, uh, Christine, we bought a, a condo down in South Beach, June of 2001. And uh, we went there uh, to set the place up during the summertime. And, of course, the tragedy of 9-11 happened while we were up in New York. Mm-hmm. And it was strictly going to be a snowbird kind of situation where mm-hmm. she would be down there and then I would commute back and forth to, to New York every week. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were down there during the winter of 01, which was uh, 
very difficult winter because South Beach is a real tourist town, mm -hmm. and it was devastated by uh, the lack of tourism. Mm -hmm. So we pulled up stakes in, oh, I'm going to say April of 01. We, we didn't even make the full year uh, down there. Mm -hmm. Sold the place and, uh, you know, regrouped back up in New York for a full You mean year. April of 02? Would that be? I'm sorry, April. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's right. April yeah. of 02. Okay. Um, took a year, you know, think about what we were going to do. And at the time I was 50 and I said, um, we've got a pre plan retirement. You can't just say, today I'm retired, tomorrow I'm going to go buy a house. So, you know, our, our finances were good enough that I said we need to find a pre-retirement home that is a home in Florida that we'll, we'll get to in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so we found the house in Wellington in 03, and um, it was a new construction. We bought it. And again, with the intention of coming down in December, January, stayed through May, and then back up to our primary residence in New York, which we, we continued to do for uh, five years. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, mom and dad, mom and dad were living in Boca. And uh, 04, I realized mom had a bum knee. She blew it out on one of her trips to visit my sister in Hawaii. I was having a hard time getting up and down the stairs of her condo in Boca. And we said, look, they're getting older. I really think we should have them around us. And um, there was a nice two-bedroom, two-bath kind of place here in, in the same community that was being built. And uh, we said, what do you think about moving into the community with us? Sell your place in Boca. And within a year, they moved here and were real happy here and uh, loved it. And how old were they at that point? I think mom was 79 and dad was 82, something mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. But that's a good age, really, to get them closer because they're still, if they're in good health, you know, they're still oh, mentally, yeah. they're able to make decisions for themselves and they're still relatively healthy and that's a, that's a good time to do that sort of thing. Yeah, they were, they were on their own. I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, prior to that, too, during the summers, uh, they would come up and stay with Christine and I wherever we were living, because we moved all over Long Island, but we always made sure there was a guest bedroom, and they would stay with us for months at a time. And, mm -hmm. um, and it was great, because we, we had things we wanted to go and do. We had a little dog, so they would take care of the dog. They'd entertain all of their family was still up in New York, the brothers and sisters and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and they would entertain at our house. We'd hear parties at our house mm -hmm. by neighbors. They'd oh, your parents are having a blast at the house. <laughs> like, drinking all my booze, eating all my food, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, they're wild and crazy but, parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they lived. My parents lived. Yeah. Um, yeah. They knew how to live, too. Like, really, yeah. really live. Their generation lived without thought of when they're going to die. And that, that is an amazing thing because my generation gets very hung up on mortality. It, it appears that my generation is very hung up on the mortality of life as we hit our 60s. Uh -huh. I don't recall my parents ever being that way. Even when they reached their 70s and 80s and, and eventually dad in his 90s, they would always say, I ain't going to live long now, but they would never dwell on dwell it. Dwell on it, right. And that's a really important point. So your parents moved uh, to, into the same community as you in Wellington, and yep. up to that point, the bum knee was the only thing about your parents health-wise that was a cons consideration, as it were. Uh, yeah. So what happened after that? Well, three years in, you know, they've been living down here. Dad drove. Mom doesn't drive. She she had a mini stroke many, many years ago, Prevents, uh, prevented some sight in her left eye so she wouldn't drive. But um, I don't know, I'd, I'd come back uh, from some, I think I was playing golf and I just, I always stopped by the house when I come in the community, just, how you doing mom and dad, you know, and they were just pulling on the driveway and I could see a look on my mother's face like a deer in the headlights. I said, what's wrong? Oh, uh, I don't know, dad'll have to tell you. And he told me, he says, I oh, went to the doctor today and I've had pains in my back and, uh, 
they're doing x-rays tomorrow, I don't know what it is, and they were very confused about what they were told, and it was the first time that I said, well, give me the doctor's number, I, I, let me call them, and uh, made the call and found out that there was a mass of some kind of an x-ray, and they wanted him to go in for an MRI, I mean, not a, a PET scan. It just so happened on that day, that afternoon, we were, Christine and I were flying up to New York for a friend's birthday for the weekend. So I gave the doctor my number, and I said, I want to know the results of this PET scan before you speak to my parents, if possible. And she was, she was accommodating enough. But when she called me, of course, it was very bad news. It was cancer, and it was a large mass. And she gave that two months to live, oh my God. which I refused to accept. And she, she said this had not even gone to the, uh, that it, this had not even gone to the oncologist. Her husband is a radiologist, and he read the radiology, and I said, well, wait a minute, right. I'm not buying that. So well, we stayed the weekend because nothing was mass critical. We said, we'll get down there on Monday, and then I'm going to start addressing this with the doctors. And then I got very involved in their health care at that point. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, took it over completely. Changed doctors, got him into my VIP doctor, which you know I knew that at least I could talk to him. He would talk to me, and Dad started to give up control to me, and he had to go through uh, radiation therapy, and um, he lasted about eight months after that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was difficult because it happened so quickly, mm -hmm. and he was 90 years old, and and at their age, when they heard the big C, they're dead. There's no belief that life is going to be worth living after that. Yeah. Did your sister come to town? How did she handle that? She flew in shortly after the actual diagnosis by the oncologist and spent a week. You know, all hope. The, the radiation will help stem it, give him some quality of life and so forth, and attended to mom a bit. And um, we talked a lot. And, uh, you know, as it was coming towards the, the end in '09, which was uh, February of '09, she flew back in. I said, you've got to come in. It doesn't look like it's much longer. Doctor has told me that hospice is on the, is on the uh, horizon, mm -hmm. like within days. And uh, it was very quickly, after, very quickly after she arrived that he passed away. Oh, uh, at least she made it. Oh, yeah. You know what? <clears throat> My sister's very good about getting on a flight and coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no problem at all. Drop everything, she'd be here. Mm -hmm. She just chose not to live in, in, in the States. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so during those eight months, was he living in your actual home? No, no. It, it, Mom tended to him. She cared for um, him? She cared for him. She, he refused to have anybody in the house. He ref and, and it was difficult mm -hmm. because this is the first time I've had to go through it. Fortunately, I have a first cousin. My father's oldest sister lived until she was 102. And the last two years virtually handcuffed my cousin and her husband to the house because they refused to get outside help, and they chose to caregive to her mom every day. And, and they couldn't leave. You know, mm -hmm. she was frail. She needed attendance all the time. And we watched this. This was just prior to Dad passing away. So when this was going on, you know, I called them for consultation, and um, they said, look, we made a mistake. We should have had, besides our children who were, grown adults helping us. We should have had professional help come in here at least once a week to give us a breather. But mom wouldn't have it. Dad would, well, at the end, mom was begging for it. But by that time, there was nothing more that a nurse could do. Uh -huh. So we all rotated. My wife rotated to it. I did. Mom was there. Give mom a break. Take mom out. You know, it was more about tending to mom because dad was bedridden at that point. This is so important for the caregiver to have a break. That is true, but first time going through it, you just don't you know. You don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, nobody knows really how burdensome it's going to be. And that's the thing that was I was going to ask you, too. You know, how prepared were you? I mean, what what would have been helpful to know? 
Um, I'll tell you some of the things that would, would have been helpful in retrospect, because you know, now in the past uh, the past year and a half, lost mom as well. But uh, you know, going through it more and more, you learn more and more every day. I tell you the one thing that I I was very um, sorry that I didn't very sorry that I did this was tried to get him to believe that radiation was going to cure. That's a mistake. At that stage of cancer, radiation is nothing more than a therapy. It really didn't ease much of his pain. And I'm very sorry that I had to believe that if he started taking the pain medications, he'd be addicted to it. Um, I wished he had taken more pain medication mm -hmm. to ease his pain in the last months of his life. And he refused to take them, too, so I should have been there a little more go. forceful. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say doing it differently, I don't think there's much more I could have done differently. We were here for him. We were here for my mom. Luckily, they were close by. I mean, literally close by. We could walk to their house if we needed to. They, they stayed in touch. If mom had a problem, she'd call us and we'd go over. And, and we would talk everybody down off the cliff, so to speak. Yeah. A calm head is, is very important to have. Very hard to do when you're in the midst of a tragedy or in the midst of your own family, your own mom and dad. But it's very important to do because they're looking for somebody with a cool demeanor while they're panicked. And, yeah. and a doctor can't be there every minute of every day. So your mom lived in the house on her own after your dad yeah. passed? Yeah, and, God and, bless her. Gosh. And how, how, how did she fare? And tell me about her uh, decline. Well, that was interesting because now we had mom, a non-driver in her mid-80s who had just lost her husband, life partner, and was living in this it's a house. I mean, it's not a one bedroom. It was, mm -hmm. it was a, a reasonable sized condo. No transportation, <laughs> you know, not a walker, not the kind of woman who would walk around the corner for anything. And we knew that we were in for this. We, we weren't sure how it was going to work out. But I have to say, we introduced her to the senior club in Wellington. And by the way, to go back to what we're saying, it was we moved here full time when dad was diagnosed. That's when I made the decision, I can work remotely. I do not want to be up in New York. I need to be down here full-time to take care of my dad. And, um, and during, those, during those six to eight months of transition is when I realized I don't need to be back up in New York for anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so double-edged sword, you know? Yeah. Uh, but to get back to mom, yeah, when, when she was now without dad, my sister stayed on for about a month after that just to help her just and then also be our eyes and ears for a month to make sure she could handle being alone for a month. Absolutely would refuse to have gone into a, a health care facility. Um, and uh, it turns out, yeah, she's very capable. Cook, clean, you know, she cleans herself. She didn't <laughs> get a housekeeper in once a week for, you know, helping out. It was a very, uh, very nice young man. Um, took care of herself. And we got on a schedule. Fridays was nails, toes, food shopping. <laughs> Wednesdays wow. with doctors. You know, uh -huh. Whatever it was, we, we had, Christine and I shared the schedule of moving her around, but we got her to the Wellington Senior Center here. She fought it a little bit. She really didn't want to do it. And we said, come on. And Christine went with her. My wife went with her. And, and you got to realize my wife is 15 years younger than me, so that's, that's mm -hmm. quite an obligation for a 40-year-old mm -hmm. to be taking on to say she's going to be taking my elderly mother mm -hmm. to do things. Mm -hmm. But she did it with great, great enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And... Um, my mother went, you know, my mother, my mother was, was a strong woman. She lived quite a life. And uh, she went out to the senior center and she met people. And thank God these, these uh, ladies over there would not let her sit alone in the house. If, if they were going to go and do something, they'd call her and tell her, Kay, you're coming with us today. Oh, I, I don't want to be a bother. And then, and then, because I managed the finances, then she would tell me at the end of the week, I bought them lunch. It was 
$25. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I'm like, Mom, it's... <laughs> I said, you got, you got to buy them lunch. They're, they're driving you around. It's gas yeah. money, you know. Oh, that's so sweet, though. Yeah. Well, so, I'll tell you a very I'll tell you a funny story. Mm-hmm. When Dad had passed, it was it was within weeks of Dad passing, maybe a month. <clears throat> and my sister wanted to take my mom. My mom loved the casinos. But she'd go to these penny arcades down here with my dad, you know, and they'd sit there, and, and if you win, you get a gift card. You know, there's no cash exchange, except your cash going into the machine. But if she could get an opportunity to go down to the, the real casino, she, she'd always want to go. And so my sister said, I'm going to take mom down to the casino. She needs to go to the ATM. I said, no problem. I'll take her over. So she goes, uh, okay, here's my ATM card. I said, mom, I know your ATM card. She goes, okay, take the maximum out, $200. And I looked at her, and I said, that, why do you think that's the maximum? Oh, Dad used to tell me that's all you could take out any given day. I started laughing. I said, Mom, mm-hmm. you could take $500 a day out if you wanted to. Oh, she goes, oh, that's son of a bitch. He's so cheap, your father. But <laughs> <laughs> for her whole life, she, th- she thought she could only, when ATMs came about, she was told by my dad, you can't take more than 200 She never tried to. <laughs> well, you know, at least she knew what an ATM was. After my uh, dad yeah. died and I moved in with my mom, uh, we went to an ATM. She'd never been to one before. <laughs> Dad did the finances. She wrote checks occasionally, but she didn't know what an ATM was. Yeah. Well, it's all, you know, it's all relatively new, ATMs and uh, yeah, online you're right. banking. I was surprised she knew what it was, too, but she also knew what a maximum was, which was funny. Did she win any money at the casino? Who knows? She won, she lost every time she won. She'd always, she'd always tell you when she won, she wouldn't tell you when she lost. You know? Dad left her in very good shape for a woman her age. Mm-hmm. Not extremely wealthy, but for a man who lived um, a moderate white-collar life, he left her in very good shape. And what a huge difference that makes, because at least they can make their own choices. There are options, and um, when there are not options, it just becomes so difficult with, with parents. So your mom was of sound mind in her 80s. Sound mind until the day she died. Amazing. Yeah, sound mind until then. She wasn't, she wasn't sickly or ill or anything like that. Unfortunately, she had a burst intestine that she thought it was a stomach ache for three days and didn't tell me about it until she was absolutely in pain. And by the time we got her to the hospital, she survived the surgery, but not the anesthesia. Yeah, it was, she, she was like comatose for about two days and then finally passed, thank God. Because mm-hmm. she wouldn't want her to have lived mm-hmm. with a coloscopy bag at 90 years old. She just wouldn't, she would have never forgiven me mm-hmm. for letting her have the surgery. Did she have a do not resuscitate plan yes. in place? Uh-huh, DNR. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We, had, we, we made sure that when uh, Dad was diagnosed with cancer, and as hard as it was for my dad, we made, we made, them, made sure there was a will in place. We made sure that, uh, and this was all done within weeks of my getting down here uh, upon his diagnosis, of having, making sure that there was a living will and that I had a DNR or, or not, and in his case, both of them, they had DNRs, and that I had a power of attorney for both of them. Do you have Very your, important. Yeah. Do you have your own plans for your own future yes. care oh, like that? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Christine wouldn't let me uh, go another, another week or two after Dad was diagnosed without making sure all of our stuff was in order. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you what you think you learned about yourself through those experiences with your folks. Well, I tell you, I think I've learned that I'm probably as stubborn as they are health-wise. I try every time that I'm trying to fight something health-wise, I stop myself and say, don't be stubborn like your mom and dad because they wouldn't go to the doctor. 
I have a VIP concierge doctor. I pay for that every year. He's waiting for me if I call him and say I'm coming in. Why wouldn't I use that service? So mm -hmm. I try to not be stubborn as they were with medical. I make sure that I tend to my medical care, not yearly, half yearly. Every six months, I have a physical and a workup and follow my doctor's instructions. Mm -hmm. So at 62, I'm trying to do what they didn't do, which is to make sure that there's benchmarks of health. In their case, they didn't. When they felt bad, they went to the doctor. And in the end, I'm not saying that dads could have been prevented, but he didn't know how sick he was until he went to the doctor. So that's one. That's absolutely one thing that I'm trying to you know, I'm trying to learn from mom and dad is try and live in the moment more, which is our generation does it less. Their generation lived in the moment. Yeah, they planned a trip or they might plan a vacation, but they didn't worry about tomorrow as much as we do. And I, I, it's not just me. I see my whole generation does it. My whole generation is more worried about tomorrow than what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Being in the now is one of the hardest things to do in our generation. Very hard. It, it really is important, you know, no, to stay in the it's, moment. A, it's probably one of the most important things I'm taking with a family. Of course, that is not something I didn't have to learn or look back and say it's something that I needed. Family is so important to me that we are actually moving from this house in Wellington or we're planning to, um, to a community down in Delray that my uncle, his, his youngest brother, has lived in for 35 years because more of my cousins and my high school friends <laughs> who I've been reconnected with after 25 years of not seeing them mm -hmm. because they're raising their families, I was raising mine, you know, mm -hmm. they're moving into this community. Wow. And so uh, in my 60s and, and their 60s, we're all reuniting again. And it's almost like it's like a rebirth. It's like it's like re-childhood again. It's so much fun. From so, New York? Yeah. Well, wow. It's just just happening that way, and we're realizing that we need to be – it's wonderful to be in this community, but we're, we're alone here. And unless we leave here and go to them, we don't see the family or unless we invite them all to the house. Whereas there, they're around us everywhere. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. trying to get to a position where family and, and close friends from – they're family because we we grew up with them. You know what I mean. Sure. Even though they're not family, sure. these are friends I've known since I was in third and fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And um, that is I really cool. Them. Yeah, I'm going to start my childhood all over again in my sixties. <laughs> <laughs> well, just make sure you keep doing those doctor checkups. <laughs> Usually, I find it's a glass of scotch that that solves that right away. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, did you have any expectations at points in your life about what growing older would be like for you? That's a that's a great question. The answer is no. I honestly until I would probably say until I had to deal with mom and dad caregiving. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I was invulnerable. Mm -hmm. I lived in New York. I lived amongst those that believed we are immortal. And, and I say this now that if you want to know mortality, you need to move to Arizona or Florida because you'll see it around you every day. And then at the same time, if you want to see miracles of life, you move to Arizona or Florida because you will see these older people who are going through problems in their golden years, medical problems, but yet they live through those medical problems and they live a good life. They go to dinners, they go play tennis, they play golf, they stay active. So your question was, is there any time that I wondered what getting older would be to me? The answer was when I moved down here and I started to see older people around me. And I'll give you an example. I play golf regularly. 
fortunately, because when I moved down here, I was 52, you know, even snowbirding, joined a golf club, and all the guys I met were 62, mm-hmm. 10 years older than me. They were retiring, or they were retired. And uh, great time, you know, and, and now you, you move along with them for 10 years. They're turning 72, I'm turning 62. And in that 10-year period of time, I've watched them all go through all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, knee problems, shoulder problems, you know, gallstones, uh, kidney stones, you hear it all, mm-hmm. you know? And then they show up two weeks later and they're playing with you again, you know? And it's, it's a wonderful thing to mm-hmm. see. But the one thing that they've all said to me during when they were 62, which is my age, was, you know, oh, I want to go to Europe, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to go here, I want to go there. They're retired. They're, they're free and they don't. And mm-hmm. then a medical situation hits them and then they can't. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at that saying, I'm 62 now. Now is when I need to do things. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I told you, we just came back off of this cruise, and everyone that was on this cruise and this particular cruise were in their 70s, and they were all saying to me, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. I wish I had done it 10 years younger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such an interesting point that you're making because it's a way of facing the reality of getting older. I think, in a way that these other cities, are, you, you will not get in these other cities. You've just hit it right on the head. I think that's the hardest part for a generation that reaches 50 to 60 years old to come face to face with mortality, because it's, it's starting to happen when you're 50. I, I think, I, I'm not going to say exclusively, but I'm going to say more so with those that have raised children, mm-hmm. that now they watch their children go off to college, they become empty nesters, and they're looking around saying, how did, how did my kid become 22 years old already, 23 mm-hmm. years old mm-hmm. already, you know? Mm-hmm. And now what am I doing? All of a sudden, my back hurts a little bit this morning, and my neck hurts, and my feet hurt. My... Well, you know what? You're not alone. Come down to Florida. Your back, your neck hurts. Guess what? That's the least of it. <laughs> you know, my doctor tells me, he's, he's 66, he says to me, he goes, Ralph, I've been in this business a long, long, long time. And he goes, I want you to know there are absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever to getting older. <laughs> I said, thanks, Doc. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I needed to hear that. Thanks you for know? that. <laughs> but my point is that mortality, uh, when, when I lived in New York and I was 40 to 50 years old, wasn't even on my mind. You know? mm-hmm. even, even if an uncle died, oh, you know, he was old, go to his funeral, mm-hmm. going to miss him. You weren't affected by it as much as when you come down here, and the day-to-day uh, nuisances of becoming older are around you. doesn't mean you can't live a youthful life, but it's in the corner of your eye down here. It's not in the corner of your eye in vital cities like New York or London or Paris. You know, It's just not around you every, every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. When you're around older people, you really have to think about your, o- your own mortality, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, no, no. and I, I'm speaking in those in those wonderful, romantic, large picture conversations because you're around old people; they're a pain in the ass sometimes. Absolutely, they're <laughs> Let's cranky, be they're miserable, they're <laughs> self righteous, they're a pain in the ass. But you can't help reflect on well, what am I going to be like? Right. You know, we whether don't it's know. your mom and dad or your family, or it's other people you know that are not your family. You say, I don't want to be like that, you know, I want to be different. So some self-awareness comes from uh, living around older people, mm-hmm. especially as you get older. Mm-hmm. So yeah. how do you define a good life or a successful life? Those are two different things, successful mm-hmm. and good. I don't know. I, uh, successful, 
I think a successful life is, is enjoying as much of your time that you can. Um, and I mean enjoying your work, enjoying the, your friends, your family, your day-to-day. Even on a bad day, try and get through it without too much anger. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it by participating in life. You know, I, I like to go out to dinners with friends. I like to go out to dinner alone with my wife, uh, travel. Uh, I like to travel to go see my grandchildren now. You know, that's a new dimension in life. I mean, it's, uh, I've had grandchildren for 13 years, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a dimension of life that children are in my life again in a different way. So, yeah, that... Um, Try not to get angry. Anger is the worst enemy of health, but that's hard to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. You're, if you're a former New Yorker, anger's mm-hmm. kind of uh, in my DNA. Yeah. <laughs> what, are you con- what are your concerns for the future? Always my children's health and well-being and my grandchildren's health and well-being. I have one son who is um, who's actually running the company in New York day-to-day, so he's in the business. His, uh, his younger brother joined him about three years ago and is working alongside him right now, learning the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another son, and in and by the one one of the sons in New York has two of our grandchildren, mm-hmm. and then I have another son. My oldest son is in Arizona, and he has two of our grandchildren, mm-hmm. and another son in uh, Portland, Oregon, okay. with two grandchildren. Oh wow! What was it like for you to hand over or sort of give to the business your son, like your dad gave it to you? What was that like? It's good. It was good. He, you know, he knows. He, he's a smart young man. He was smart when he came out of college. Of course, he got out of college right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't much out there in the banking field for him in, in uh, 01. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came in and embraced it. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we gave each other a one-year contract. We said, look, one year. You have to stay one year. You can't leave. I have to keep you one year. I can't, I can't throw you out. <laughs> and let's, <laughs> let's see how it goes. And uh, it, went, it went beautifully. That's great. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but to the point of how Americans think about aging. What do you what do you think about the way Americans generally think about aging? I think my generation has the toughest time. My generation, our generation, is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Invulnerable, immortal. We're going to live forever. You know, we're, we're yuppies at one time. We're going to conquer the world. Um, and you know what? All of a sudden, age creeps up on you, and you can't run 20 miles every day. Not everyone can. I'm sure there are those that can. You know, you, you can't go three days without sleeping and working hard. You know, it's just it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very hard thing to accept is when you reach those limitations before you accept them, is, is to reach them you mm-hmm. know, and say, I, I can't believe the limitations in front of me. I don't believe our generation want them, well, obviously, by the commercials. Look at the commercials. It's all about youth. It's all about keeping yourself looking younger. The, the plastic surgery that's going on, uh, in, in male and female in this country, to look younger. Well, you can look as young as you want, but if you don't feel young and if you don't keep healthy, all those looks don't do anything for you. But I think our generation really has an obsession with being younger. And I've been around people that are my age, 62, 63, 64, that are so vain about their youth, and mm-hmm. they won't accept that they're, they're aging. You know, they just don't want to accept it. And I'm not saying not mentally youthful. They don't want to be physically older, and that's a fact of gravity. Mm-hmm. And the, the only way around that is surgery, and I've <laughs> seen a lot of it. It does not look good. Yeah. I don't care what their doctors tell them. That surgery does not look good on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at the same time, too, I think that because we are baby, are baby boomers, we have certain expectations about what 
our quality of life should look like. And and there's a whole industry out there catering to a generation that is used to getting what they want. And so we're looking at the process in a really different way, and I think we're demanding certain things that our parents didn't demand. Um, I agree. That's that's a very great observation. Um, and, you know, some of, it, some of it's actually happening, though. I mean, because of our requirements, so many medical leaps, I believe, have been taken to help secure the so-called fountain of youth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we are closer to curing cancer now than we were 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So much closer to it. Uh, the quality of life for, for women with breast cancer has been extended probably 80 or 90 percent over what it was even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there are medical leaps and bounds being made that are going to extend our lives. The question is, will we have the mental capacity to live within our abilities once our lives have been extended that long? Because there will be limitations. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll see. As, as I get older, call me in 25 years. I'll okay. Let you know. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else that you'd like to add or say before we take off? No, Jen. I, I think what you're doing is great. I hope, hope enough people when in times of need and stress, because so many people don't have the family sounding boards or the, the, the close-knit community sounding boards to go to when they're in the stress of caregiving and, and uh, helping to uh, have older people live quality lives around them. I hope that they listen to what you have to say or the people that are talk, you're talking to and get something, glean something from it. Well, thanks so, yeah. so much. Ralph Delia, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I appreciate your taking the time and all of your thoughts. Really, really interesting to talk with you. Thanks so much. Take care, Ralph. Thanks. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks, Okay. Jane. Bye-bye. Bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of today's program. You can email me at jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast and download any episodes for free at iTunes. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise. <laughs>